Let's get started here. I'm going to read through the announcements and uh, what we'll do is, is we'll, we'll have a prayer after the announcements and uh, after the prayer, Brother Hunter's going to uh, lead us in the doxology. And then I will uh, introduce us to my co-teacher today. The prayer this morning will be led by uh, Sister Becky Frazier. She is a classmate at Lipscomb. And uh, I asked her if she would pray for us this morning. There's one thing that you'll learn about me as the class goes along. You may not like it, but you'll learn it about me. All right. Family news. We began hosting room in the end guests in five weeks. Volunteer registration is available online under service opportunities in Otter Happenings. The launching point is today at 5.30 in the gathering room. If you are interested in learning more about our life group groups, please join us. Light refreshments will be served. Register online. Also, the family prayer concerns for this week. Uh, Betty Brooks, her grandmother, uh, the grandmother of Amanda Vickers passed away on September the 20th. Uh, Kay is at Hedden, uh, the sister of Janice Church. Um, broke her shoulders in three places. Uh, she had shoulder replacement surgery on September the 23rd. Morgan Miller, the brother of Melanie Lockie, uh, had a successful removal of cancer. James Batten Springer, the father of Kay Duncan, passed away on September the 21st. And Vicki Tomlinson uh, had successful neck surgery on September the 21st for a pinched nerve. Are there any other prayer requests? Uh, I had uh, uh, a procedure this past Tuesday. Okay. Cancer on the removal. They said it was 100% success. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, let's do that. That's awesome. Any other prayer requests? I want to say is one last announcement. I forgot to say this. If you have not signed up uh, in the back, if you would put your uh, name and email address on that. Uh, Eric sent out, Eric Livingston sent out an email this past week. We want to make sure that everybody knows about it. Uh, there, we're trying to have a potluck uh, next week at 6 o'clock. Uh, Brother Don uh, McLaughlin from North Atlanta Church of Christ will be here, and we're trying to have a potluck and sit down and uh, have a conversation, and that would be awesome to for all of us to be together. What night is that again? Next Sunday, 6 p.m. here at the building, I believe. Um, any other prayer requests? All right, Sister Becky, if you would uh, come lead us in prayer, I'm gonna leave this up here if you want to read that. <laughs> Please pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for this beautiful day that you've blessed us with. Thank you for the warmth and the sunshine that you've given us today. Thank you for the cooler weather and fall that's headed our way. We love the changing of the seasons, God. Um, there's a lot of prayer requests that we have today. There's a lot of our body that's hurting and, and sick physically and spiritually and um, emotionally right now. God, we ask that you just wrap your arms around them and um, comfort them and heal them. And please be with this church as we, um, as we wrap our arms around those people as well, God. Uh, we also have some praises and some joys that we lift up to you. And we know that you, God, um, are the uh, maker of all good things. And we thank you so much for, um, for those praises and those joys. God. Thank you so much for every person in this room. Thank you for their hearts. Thank you for their willingness to ask tough questions and to be a part of change, God. We ask that you soften our hearts and help us to see things the way that you see things and hear things the way you hear things. We love you so much, and it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Let us all stand for the doxology. Let's try to drown out the noise <laughs> upstairs. <laughs> Ready? Pray.
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly participation this morning. I want to start off by welcoming everyone back to class. I see that we all survived the week and are back here this morning to talk about this subject once again. Um, this week we're going to, uh, first of all, for those of you who don't know, my name is Robert Jackson. Last week I introduced myself as a uh, black man who is a member of a racially segregated uh, religious group known as the Churches of Christ. I keep saying that on purpose because I do not want us to lie to ourselves. We are racially segregated. It's just a fact. Something we got to deal with. But the question is, is what are we going to do going forward? We're going to stay that way. We're going to move forwards. So um, that brings me to the next thing. Um, Pretty sure everybody's seen the news from this past week. There's been at least, that I know of, three more killings. There was the Tulsa shooting, there was the Charlotte shooting, and there was another gentleman that got uh, killed, apparently from what I read from the, uh, from the story. He had, uh, there's some confusion about it, but someone called the police, whether it be him or his girlfriend, but he was the one that was needing help, but he's the one that's laying dead. So, I mean, we could think what, whatever we want to think on that right there, but despite whatever we think about it, there are three more black souls dead at the hands of the police. The one in Tulsa is a very interesting case because if you have not heard to this point, there have been plenty of reports that have confirmed this. Officer Betty Jo Shelby is a member of the same racially segregated church that we are a member of. So this morning, as a black man standing here before you, of course I have mixed emotions. I'm sad because there are more black souls dead at the hands of the police. I'm disturbed that there's a possibility that I could be the next one because I've been broken down on the road several times before. What am I supposed to feel when I see the blue lights pull up for help? I'm also Sad to hear that my sister is being raked over the coals in the, uh, in the media because she killed a black man. So it's not as, as easy as some people think that it is. I've heard people say, well, well we got to pray harder. You know, prayer is, is a part of it, but what did James say? Faith without works is dead. I mean, if we're just gonna sit around and talk, 
question is, is, is each and every one of us in this room today willing to stand up, even if it is a family member? Are we willing to stand up to that family member and speak up for someone? Are you willing to be an outcast? Last time I checked, as Christians, we're all outcasts. So why, why is it that so many Christians here in America are siding with a system that's broken and that continues to show that it does not care? I watched a video this morning where a man was laying on the ground and uh, police were about to handcuff him. He resisted arrest. He got up. He fought the police. He's still alive. <coughs> Caucasian man. But I watch a video of a brother. He's got his hands up. Just like this. About my size. Got his hands up. Complying. You may, you may be saying, no, nah, he wasn't complying. He was walking away. Regardless, the brother's dead. He didn't touch the police, according to the video. Got a brother that got out of a vehicle, was backing away. He didn't touch the police. He's dead. But then I watch another video where this guy put his hands on the police. He's still alive. How am I supposed to feel as a black man? Think about that. This week, uh, we're going to be talking about racism within the churches of Christ. That's not so, is it? We're the one true church, right? That's not so. We got this thing right. Brother Richard Hughes is going to talk with us about that. He, he wrote the article that, that uh, was passed out, well, I say passed out, that was on the table last week. And uh, he's going to talk to us for about the next 20 minutes here. And uh, he's going to give us something to think about. And uh, after that, um, we're going to do something a little different. So if you would, please give him your undivided attention. Brother Hughes. I'm a child of the white, of the white churches of Christ. Born and bred in that tradition. As far as race was concerned, the only positive thing I can report from my early years was this, that the school district in my hometown, San Angelo, Texas, integrated in 1955, one of the first in the South to follow the court order handed down in Board versus Brown of Education, thanks to the superintendent, who was also an elder, in my home church, the Church of Christ. But the positives end there. In 1955, when the freedom movement began, I was 12 years old, entering junior high school. In 1965, I was 22 years old and graduating from Harding College. The intervening 10 years, as you know, were critical for the civil rights movement. I have no memory of a single event connected with that movement during any of those years. No one in my church ever once encouraged me to pay attention to the civil rights movement, nor did any of my professors at Harding College. In fact, I don't recall that any teacher or any administrator at Harding ever mentioned the freedom movement in a positive way. Malcolm X was murdered on my birthday, February 21st, 1963, but I didn't notice. In fact, I'm quite sure I had no idea who Malcolm was. In all of this, I was a child of the culture in which I was raised. Some years ago, I wrote a book entitled Myths America Lives By. I explored in that book the myth of the chosen nation, the notion that God chose America for a special mission in the world. I explored the myth of nature's nation, the notion that the American nation is rooted in self-evident truths built into nature by Almighty God. I explored the myth of the millennial nation, the notion that the mission of the United States is to usher in a golden age for all humankind. I explored the myth of the Christian nation, 
the notion that America is founded on Christian principles and ideals, and I explore the myth of the innocent nation. The notion that while other nations have blood on their hands, we do not because our cause is always just. Recently I gave a lecture in which I recounted those myths, and when I was finished, an African-American scholar named James Noel, recently deceased, leaned over and whispered in my ear, Professor, he said, you left out the most important of all the American myths. And what would that be, I asked. The myth of white supremacy, Noel said. Over the last several years, I've thought long and hard about what Professor Noel told me, and I've concluded he was right. And I have come to see that as a child of American culture, I absorbed that myth just as I absorbed all the others. The myth of white supremacy was the air I breathed. And because, like air, it's invisible, I never realized how profoundly that myth had shaped me. But while I was a child of American culture, I was also a true child of the Church of Christ. The first thing we must say about white churches of Christ is this, that like me, it also absorbed the great American myths, including the myth of white supremacy. And that one fact goes a long way toward explaining the attitudes of these churches toward the freedom movement in the 1950s and the 1960s and even the 1970s. Two gospel papers served the white churches of Christ during those years. The Gospel Advocate, based in Nashville, and the Firm Foundation, based in Austin, Texas. If those two papers were the only sources of information you had during those years, you would never have known the Civil Rights Movement was taking place. From 1955, when the movement began, until 1968, when King was murdered 13 years, neither of those papers ever so much as acknowledged the Civil Rights Movement or Martin Luther King. Only when the great black evangelist, Marshall Keeble, passed away just a few months after King's assassination, did those papers even acknowledge there had ever been Martin Luther King Jr. And they did so in a backhanded sort of way by praising Keeble, who they said, and I'm quoting, never led a riot, never burned out a block of buildings, never marched on Washington. In fact, Rule Lemons, editor of the Firm Foundation, summed up the attitude of most, I think, in white churches of Christ in those years, the attitude toward King and toward the entire freedom movement. Here's what Rule Lemons wrote. A lot of people wanted to compare King to Jesus Christ. In reality, King was a modernist and denied faith in Christ as taught in the Bible. If he was not an outright communist, he certainly advocated communist causes. His absolute disregard for law and order, except those laws and orders which he wanted to obey, leaves me cold. The white churches of Christ, therefore, took their place alongside all those other southern churches of whom Martin Luther King said, I have traveled the length and breadth of Alabama and Mississippi and all the other southern states on sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings I have looked at her beautiful churches with her lofty spires pointing heavenward. I have beheld the impressive outlay of her massive religious education buildings. And over and over again, I have found myself asking, what kind of people worship there? Who is their God? Now, it will do us very little good to rehash all those failures seems rather pointless, but we can accomplish a great deal of good moving forward, as Robert has suggested, 
if we can inquire into the reasons for those failures so we can do better in this generation, in this place, in this time. And our failures as a church, the ethical failures on the ground were at their core theological failures. In those days, we read the Bible through the lens of the dominant culture instead of reading the culture through the lens of the biblical text. And I know of no way to resist the shaping and defining power of the dominant culture unless we possess two assets. Number one, we must occupy, Christians, a theological vantage point that allows us to look into our culture, as it were, from the outside of the culture itself, looking into it. And second, that theological vantage point must provide us, equip us with a set of values that are foreign to the culture, that stand in judgment on the culture, and that challenge the culture's values in radical ways. Every Christian has access to precisely that kind of vantage point. The New Testament calls it the gospel. And the gospel has two key components. A vertical component, which is God's love and grace that he freely extends to each of us. And a horizontal component that scripture calls the gospel of the kingdom, or the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. And it's not very difficult to determine what those terms mean. For virtually every time they appear in the biblical text, the context has to do with feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, resisting imperial powers that build their wealth and power on the backs of marginalized people. Sound familiar? Oh, yeah. And standing shoulder to shoulder with those very people marginalized by imperial powers. And those two components, the vertical and the horizontal, are intimately connected. Simply put, the gospel of the kingdom, horizontal, requires that we extend the same unmerited love and grace to our neighbors that God has extended to us, vertical. No single New Testament passage states the relationship between these two components more clearly than 1 John 3, 16 to 18. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for each other. How does God's love abide in anyone who has this world's goods and sees a brother or a sister in need and yet refuses to help? Little children, let us love, not in word or in speech, but in truth and action. And that's what Robert was talking about. That simple message should equip every Christian to cut through racial tensions in a positive way by embracing our neighbors, especially those oppressed by imperial powers, and especially those Jesus called the least of these, regardless of differences in color, class, religion, or any other factor. But in the years of the freedom movement, the white churches of Christ, now this is pivotal, understood and embraced neither, neither of these great biblical themes. We therefore, the white churches, lacked the vantage point that might have allowed us to view the culture from outside itself and to judge America's cultural values in radical ways. There was a time when large segments of the Churches of Christ understood and practiced both of these themes. The segment led by an early 19th century reformer named Barton W. Stone. 
David Lipscomb stood squarely in that tradition, and most of us know the story of how Lipscomb responded to the cholera epidemic in Nashville in 1872. You remember the story? An epidemic that hit impoverished African Americans in Nashville with devastating force. Every day, Lipscomb went into that community and held the victims of the plague. He bathed them, he comforted them, did what he could to relieve their suffering at great risk to his own life. But that sort of vision was short-lived in our churches. And by the early 20th century, a legalism and exclusivism that lifted up the Church of Christ as the one true church essentially drove out the gospel of grace, drove out the gospel of the kingdom, and marginalized those Jesus called the least of these. The father of that legalism was Alexander Campbell, who, in addition to Barton W. Stone, served as the other principal leader of Churches of Christ in the early 19th century. And for a variety of reasons we don't have time to explore today, Campbell's legalism eclipsed Stone's theology of grace in the early 19th century. The truth is, the greatest strength of Churches of Christ has always been our allegiance to the biblical text. But Campbell asked questions of the text that the text simply did not answer. Simply put, Campbell taught us to read the Bible as a scientific treatise that gives us scientific and detailed instructions for how to restore the forms and structures of the primitive church. Campbell seldom asked what the Bible said about the poor. Instead, he asked about the biblical pattern for worship. He seldom asked what the Bible said about marginalized people. Instead, he asked about a rationally constructed plan of salvation. He seldom asked what the Bible said about people oppressed by imperial powers. Instead, he asked about the biblical model for the proper organization of the local church. And in all these ways, Campbell diverted the eyes of the churches of Christ from the prize of the kingdom of God. In addition, Campbell argued that the Christian age, now get this, crucial, began not with Jesus, but with the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. In this way, he essentially cut churches of Christ off from the biblical vision of the kingdom of God, that profoundly ethical vision. For we find that vision spelled out in the Hebrew prophets, Amos, Hosea, Jeremiah, Isaiah, on the one hand, and the Gospels on the other. And instead of spending our time with those materials, and I recall this vividly when I was a child growing up in Texas, we spent our time with the book of Acts because that's where we learned the details of the primitive church. In my view, the idea of restoration is not the culprit. The culprit is what we sought to restore. We ask about forms and structures of the primitive church when we should have been asking about the kingdom of God. We ask how to restore those forms and structures when we should have been asking how to serve as radical disciples of Jesus. The hour is late, but it's not too late. For churches of Christ, and this one in particular, can yet serve the cause of racial reconciliation. But for that to happen, We must first build on our greatest strength, our allegiance to the biblical text, but we must embrace the gospel of grace on the one hand and the gospel of the kingdom on the other. Now I want to share with you just two passages that really line out this gospel of the kingdom and then I'm done. We're going to the biblical text that place that we have always gone to in Churches of Christ. And the first passage is from Jesus himself. When Jesus first 
announces his vocation. He tells us what he came to do. Here's what he said. When he came to Nazareth, as was where, where he had brought up, been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to who? To the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to who? The captives. And recovery of sight to who? To the blind. To let the oppressed go free. To let the oppressed go free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the text says, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is Jesus telling us what he is all about. Now, I want to read one more passage and I'm done. And this passage is the only picture in the entire biblical text of the final judgment and what God requires and what he doesn't. And there's not one word here about did you get your theology straight? Not one. Not one word here about how often did you go to church? Not one word. Not one word about were you baptized? I'm not saying all of that is unimportant, but there's not one word in this text about those things. Here's what Jesus said. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He'll place the sheep at His right hand, but the goats He'll place on His left. And then the King will say to those on His right, Come, O blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. Here's that word again, the kingdom of God. Inherit the kingdom of God prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? What do they do? They got their theology straight. No. For I was hungry, and you gave me some food. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will say, Lord, when did we see thee? Hungry, and feed thee, or thirsty, and give thee drink. And when did we see thee a stranger, and welcome thee, or naked, and clothe thee? And when did we see thee sick, or in prison, and visit thee? And the king will answer, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. Those brothers and sisters are our marching orders. If we take this message seriously, we can move forward and bring some serious change. And uh, All right, thank you, Brother Hughes. We got Sister Pam Crosby with us this morning. And uh, Sister Pam's been a member here for a while, right? Yep. All right. <laughs> so she's been here for a while. So we want to hear your take from what you just heard about what Brother Hugh shared with us. How did you hear that? How, how does, what runs through your head when you hear those words? Ah, well, I'm being put on the I guess I was just processing what, what was said. A lot of it is true. Uh, I think about white privilege and that um, 
a lot of people don't realize, a lot of white people don't realize that that exists and that you enjoy, that you live in that. And, um, and in the church is that. And I always think about how, uh, sometimes I think about you guys, if, you, if it flipped and you were like me in a black church and you were the minority, you know, what would that, what would that do? What would that mean? How would you live? I mean, that's where you went all the time. And, uh, and I think, um, I'm just saying what's hit, hitting my head. So it may not necessarily connect specifically with you. But, um, but I do agree that the Bible has always been there for us and it's always told us exactly what to do, but we choose to interpret it the way we want. And then we also are influenced by the culture. And it's more comfortable to just do you know, what's there instead of being radical. People who go to jail for social justice, uh, that's, a, that's a way of, of making the changes. It's like you said, you never, you never even heard of my, uh, Malcolm X. But had you just been involved in, in another part of life, had you been encouraged to look on the other side, mm -hmm. you would have known this. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's why I always think about travel. People always ought to move out of your little world because things are different and people, and God is there. And uh, I think about how people always forget that God created all of us. It's just like, you know, if you saw uh, all these flowers, but you didn't like this certain color flower, so you're gonna root all that out because you know I so like that. Or if you only, of all the dogs that you had, only your dogs were only one color. Mm -hmm. You know what is that? You know God created all of this, and that we are all part of it, and so you just can't pick and choose. Um, but shame on the church. I do say shame on the church, and that doesn't do any good, but it kind of helps me move on. Okay, shame, move on. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not saying, um, sometimes I also think that we still, you have to remember that your perspective is still white. I listen to black radio because I will get what I need there. Uh, and I do, I listen to both. Uh, and I challenge you to do that. You know, if you, if you listen to one certain thing all the time, you're always going to stay there. And I know you've been told, go to a black church or go to, you know, pick up a black magazine and see what's, what's there. Because, you know, if not, you're just looking at one portion. But I think that's true of the church. I think we cannot be truly informed Christians if we only are looking at one side. And my son just said something to me that made me think, pop a little further, that a lot of your perspective is white. You think Jesus is white. You do. You know you do. And uh, one of the best things that happened to me is Jesus not white. Yeah. One of the best things that happened. Y'all didn't. He spoke that that language, you know. So, but think about it. And uh, one of the things that I remember when I was, I guess I was in college, and just realizing where was the Garden of Eden. You know where it was. It was in Africa, so that means we are all Africans. <laughs> I mean, it's there. It's there, but you don't want to see it. So um, I've said enough, but um, just think about that and, and put yourself in the minority and then see what's going on. And don't just do once a while. I mean, stay there. Camp out and see what happens to you and how, how that informs how you live and how you give and how you pray and, um, you know, and who you think about, who is important. Just like you said, that woman who killed this man, that's a sister. That's mm -hmm. your sister. My that's sister. my sister. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to think of her as my sister. <laughs> she just killed my brother. Mm -hmm. You know, but there we are in this crux. And I think that's where Jesus puts us a lot of times because it's too comfortable to stay out here in our little spiritual jacuzzis. We need to come <laughs> in and see, you know, we need to, you know what I'm saying? Nothing. I think you answered all of the questions that we had. <laughs> With one. <laughs> I don't know. I want my son to say something. Come on up. I do. Not right now. Not right now, okay. <laughs> but right. thank you. Actually, later on, um, 
in the few weeks uh, to come, we're going to have a question answer session and Adriel's gonna be a part of that. Adriel has a story that he told me and I think Otter Creek needs to hear it. And it, it hurt me when, to hear him tell the story, but I can understand where he's coming from. So the week that we, I guess before we do it, we'll announce it so that you can bring some tissue because it's, it's pretty powerful. Um, question and answers. Yes, sir. African-Americans who cooperated in capturing other Africans to make them slaves. In order for the Church of Christ, Brother Keeble fostered apartheid within the yeah. church. I mean, I, right. I grew up at the Jackson Street Church of Christ. I even wrote a book about Brother Keeble, Marshall Keeble. Uh, uh, I can recall when Brother Burden spoke at the Jackson Street Church of Christ and they section off the church for the white congregants mm -hmm. to worship with us at the Jackson Street Church of Christ. Mm -hmm. The black folks had to move to the back or in the balcony, mm -hmm. and all the white folks had to, got to set up front. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, it's very similar to the, you know, the Jewish people in Rome. They were marginalized, and you had uh, certain Jewish people that became wealthy because they cooperated with the imperialistic Roman structure. And I saw Marshall Keeble do the same thing. His pet project was, of course, the NCI. As long as he kept quiet on social justice issues, the money flowed. Mm -hmm. Marshall Keeble didn't even have a high school education, mm -hmm. nonetheless a college education, but he was director of a school to train African-American men mm -hmm. to preach. Not saying that they didn't have, you know, talented people that worked at the school, but he was the, the director. And he literally, I mean, I was at his funeral at Madison Church of Christ. Mar Marshall Keeble clowned. I mean, he, he clowned for white folks. And, and, but he got what he want. But he set a trajectory for the black churches to this day that is impaired. And, 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 and you won't hear African-American preachers speak against what happened in Tulsa or, or other, other places. They won't speak up. You won't hear it at Straight Line. You won't hear it at Jackson Street. You won't hear it at Hart Street. You won't hear it. I mean, they are afraid, and they, but it comes from having somebody like Keeble that was silent. So they, 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 he set a model for not speaking up against social injustice. So they think that he had to, that, that they, don't, they, don't, they don't need to speak up. But uh, I mean, I grew up in a household where my father, he was proactive. I mean, he was an elder at under Keeble, uh, but he was antithetical against Marshall Keeble. I say that uh, because every Sunday he he spoke against his uh, pardon my pardon this expression his his clowning, and some black folks will say cooning, and uh, Marshall Keeble just cooned for white folks. I'm sorry to say that, and I hate to put it in such harsh language, but Marshall Keeble was a he hurt us so much. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he hurt. He hurt the image of, of, of African Americans so much, and now black folks are just scared now. I mean, they're they're so afraid uh, to speak up against social injustice. Uh, I just wish that, and and that's why I appreciated um, the gentleman who uh, is at Rochester now Church uh, that taught with my Ruben Shelley. You know, he was so instrumental in uh, mentoring some of the leaders we have here at Otter Creek, and he. He was a fair man. I just, I just wish that the church would give birth to men like that again, and that it would rebirth, and uh, that we have social injustice overflowing. Yes, sir. Just, just real quick to follow up with brother, what, what brother Hunter said. I challenge each and every one of you to read the book Undying Dedication. It's about the life of G.P. Bowser, and in that book, it talks about what brother Hunter saw firsthand. G.P. Bowser went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Marshall Keeble about a school that was here in Nashville, here in the Nashville area. Marshall Keeble thought that it was okay for the blacks to come to the school and go through the back door. 
J.P. Bowser said no. J.P. Bowser said that if I am going to be a part of this school, my people are going to be treated the exact same way. And because the leaders of that school said that the blacks had to go through the back door and Keeble was okay with it, mm -hmm. G.P. Bowser left. G.P. Bowser refused to stand for it. G.P. Bowser is a name that you will not hear much about in the black churches of Christ. Right, that's right. Because we are Keebleites. That plain and that simple. And for the people that are listening to this podcast later on, I'll probably get in trouble for that, but it's the truth. Yes, sir. Uh, so, uh, brother, brother Hughes, one of the things that you said is you talked about the Church of Christ. Uh, our thing is uh, the biblical text, but that biblical text has also led us to believe that all churches of Christ are autonomous. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things is my good friend Autumn Prather is here, and um, she grew up at the Jefferson Street uh, Baptist Church, and those Baptist churches are all tied into and my like I call him my older brother, but. He's my very good friend, Harold Love Jr. He's an AME preacher. They're all tied into these big national conferences. Well, all churches of Christ are autonomous. So when, if you go to Troy Lane or if you go to Otter Creek, it's very different. One of the things that I've noticed when I talk about Otter Creek is, Josh going to preach about hell. Uh, Troy Lane, he was always going to hell. And you went to hell, yeah. hell was yeah. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, Same way at Taylor Street. <laughs> so, but Josh, it's like hell doesn't exist. He's never even mentioned it once. So, so one of the things about the autonomous nature of churches of Christ is when I invite my African-American friends and some of my liberal white friends to come to these classes, first thing they say is, oh, God, Jengis, I have to hear some instrumentation. Uh, I, I just, I just got to get to get through it. I just on Sunday, I just want to hear. So I said, "Well, you come to second service." I said, "What's the second service? They got a guitar. They gonna play." And everything. <laughs> um, they said, "Well, well Jenkins, is he gonna send everybody to hell?" Because I, I, Church of Christ says all they gonna do is send everybody to hell. And I said, "No, Josh don't even know there is a hell." <laughs> so, 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 so part of the issues that I that we face as a national body even though the churches are autonomous is, you can't duplicate these conversations at other churches. Because there's, there's no national organization that says, hey man, y'all need to start talking about this. Like we gotta be advancing the, the national conversation on race, but obviously there was a church in Texas that had a member that decided to kill somebody. So they, that church obviously wasn't on the list, right? So, so how do we, considering these churches are all autonomous, how do we duplicate these kind of conversations? Because it's wonderful what Otter Creek is doing, but because this church is not very diverse, uh, because this church doesn't have, let me just make it real simple, you can count the number of African Americans at this church on your hand. How do you go about making this a national conversation? Because the, the, the issues of African American churches uh, in this country are all, they're a lot, they're, a lot, they're, they're multiplied in the African American church environment. It's just like we got the worst end of it, that you do have a situation like Marshall Keeble, you have G.P. Bowser, but most of us don't even know about it. But the more, the more pressing issue is, how do we talk about the church, at least, being a place where black and white people can worship and come together and to worship the same God? How do we even do that? Because our churches are autonomous. So that's the, the question I would have for, for you. And I, I wish I had an answer, and I, I, I really don't have an answer. It is, it's, it's a real problem. Uh, how, do we, how do we begin to open up these conversations across congregational lines? How do we, but I think that's something we really need to do. But the first thing we've got to do is make sure our house is in order. Yeah. Now, if, if we make sure our house is in order here, then we might be in a position to begin some kind of conversations or and what those would look like, I don't know. I would just argue that, that you know, our governing body, the, uh, the teaching institutions, the Bible department, the teaching institutions. <laughs> That's true. Mr. Wright, excuse me, I say that until, for example, you still have Lipscomb University, but uh, you can only be a professor there if you are a member of the Church of Christ. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> I don't know how you do that. It, and expect to impact people's lives in a different way. And a lot of you know I work with United Methodists, and so 
it's a totally different thing where there is no autonomy. There is this one place that brings, but it touches everybody, but their ministries go a lot further because they are connected. That's a big thing. We are a globally connected church. That's what they say. And I don't see how we're going to get there in this present system. The word gets out. I mean, it'll get out. My father, who was here last week, was in California and called me and said, there's a church there that's getting ready to add instruments. My church dad. So, you know, I think if we just keep pressing along, all you got to do is let it get out there. I mean, and it got out there before we actually started having music because it, it hit the that's right. And that's it. I mean, we just got to keep having the conversation and, um, and, you know, let it get out there. Maybe if we do enough to get in the media, the media take care of the rest. <laughs> Go ahead. I don't know if, like, how to exactly best word this question, and I don't know who it's to or what it's for, but you talked a little more about white privilege and, and things like that. And as someone, I guess, confession too, as who has recently realized their own white privilege, how would you, how would you suggest trying to help the people you love who might not have realized that mm. yet that it exists? Mm. Good question. Anybody got an answer for that? <laughs> well, I will say Don, who is coming next week, does an incredible job good. unpacking white privilege, yeah, and I heard him do that at Pepperdine, which is to the earlier question. These lectureships are very important. It's the closest thing we have to a convention. Uh, you know, I heard of, I never heard of Fred Gray until I went to National Jubilee in the 90s, right? You, there are these conversations happening at our, at our lectureships and in those kinds of forums, which is, you know, with uh, absent a convention, I think that's as close as we get. I'll tell you what. Next week, I'm going to have to talk to Lee. Next week, I think we need to just have a Q&A session because there are a bunch of hands that are still up, but it is 10.52 right now. So unfortunately, we have to end it. But remember, the book is called Undying Medication, and it's about the life of G.P. Bowser. That's somewhere where you can start of the mindset of what it, – it'll give you insight to the mindset of, that I have now versus what I had growing up being a keeper like. Thank you all.